Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. I'm very happy to be with you and thank you for tuning in. It's always an honor, a privilege to open the Bible, to study together, and I would like to welcome the members of our panel for today. Will, thank you for joining. Nice to be part of the panel today. Joe, thank you for joining us. Always a privilege. Thank you, Nick. Brenton, thank you for coming with us. It's nice to be here, Nick, and uh, the subject we're studying, Through the Veil, I believe is a very important one. True. Helen, also it's good to have you with us. Thank you. I've just spent a week being very sick, so I'm very glad I'm on my feet to come and join the panel. Thank you. Praise God. Ken, it's good to have you joining us also. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be back after a couple of weeks' holiday. Always seemed funny not being available on authority for that, but it's good to be back. And Lija, thank you for joining. I really appreciate this opportunity and uh, I thank God that we have this uh, blessing to be together and study God's word. It's a privilege, a special privilege. And Len, thank you for joining us and also preparing this Bible study for today. Well, thank you for the welcome, Nick, and hello, listeners. Well, we're almost through the series of Bible studies on the book of Hebrews. So far, one of the greatest themes opened up in Hebrews is that Jesus is in heaven as our mediator, king, and high priest. Had Jesus remained in the tomb, there would be no forgiveness of sins and no salvation for anyone. But Jesus has risen from the dead as victor over Satan, sin, and death. And because of that victory, he was able to make this promise. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And this is the blessed hope for Christians. Well, in the Old Testament temple, there were two special rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. In the most holy place was God's law in the Ark of the Covenant, along with the jar of manna, the miracle food that sustained the Israelites for 40 years, and Aaron's rod that budded. God's glory filled that room, the most holy place. Between the two rooms hung a heavy, thick veil, and no one was permitted to enter that room except the high priest. And at that, only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest came into the very presence of God. So, what of today? Is there a veil separating mankind from God? And we're going to discuss this question after Will prays for us. Lord, as we come to you in prayer, asking for a blessing on our study today, we confess that many of us are really troubled by all the heartache and insecurity the people of this world are confronted with yes. uh, at this time. There's floods of despair affecting many people right here in our country. Yes. The inundation of water, 
and uh, the displacement. And then, Lord, further afield, war and bloodshed in Europe and the terror experienced by those fleeing from armed conflict in Ukraine. Yes. We're also aware that there might be, even amongst our listeners today, those who have to confront unsettling circumstances in their own homes and lives. We pray that your merciful presence will cover them and bring assurance once again. And so, Lord, we commit to you again today this troubled world and ourselves Mm. as we uh, enter this Bible study. And we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Will. Well, Joe, I want to ask you an opening question. Do people need to be afraid of God? And if they do, why? And if they don't, why? Well, that's a really interesting question, Lynn, because there are many in our society who claim they don't believe in God, let alone are afraid of him. So, you know, this is the nature of society that we live in. But the thing is, the truth is that I don't think people need to be afraid of God. I know that in some religions, the fear of God is a literal fear of an angry God. And so I don't think People need to be afraid of God because he is our loving father. But it's the the very nature of sin that causes a separation, an alienation, and a fear of God that shuts us away from God. But as we know, God has gone to great lengths to bridge this chasm of death and fear. All right. Well, now, when the first people on earth, that's Adam and Eve, sinned by disobeying what God had commanded, what happened, Ledger? They've been separated from God because their robes of light disappeared and their intimacy with God was disrupted because their newly discovered intimacy with self, a centeredness of evil was implanted in themselves through the sin. And uh, they lost God's righteousness that was given uh, at creation. I would like to say that human souls long for intimate relationship with God and Jesus covers us again with with his righteousness and through his promises. And that's good. But the point is here that sin separates man from God. Yes, Brenton. Sin also separates people from people. One of the things that um, has happened as a result of sin is that um, when God asked Adam, have you eaten of the fruit of the tree I told you not to eat of? He said, the woman you gave me, gave it to me and I ate. When he questioned Eve, she said, the serpent deceived me. So basically we had not only guilt and shame, we also had the start of what we call today the blame game. It's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. And I think that's important to remember that unfortunately that has infected the whole of the human race. Yes, I've heard of people who've actually caused a motor accident who blamed the other driver's car for being there, making the accident. Well, that's a little bit stupid, but (laughs) this is the kind of... It happens. It happens. Yes. Now, this separation between man and God happened right in the early part of uh, the history of this world, Has that separation continued, Helen? 
Well, I think the short answer there is yes, I believe so. In fact, the Bible confirms this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And it says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. You know, for us, some things seem sins seem bigger than others because their obvious consequences are much more serious. You know, murder, for example, seems to us to be worse than hatred and adultery seems worse than pride. But all sins make us sinners and all sins cut us off from a holy God. However, let me say that they all can be forgiven. Yes, and this is um, the wonderful thing that we'll be dealing with today. Because sin has continued... The separation from God has continued. And to come back to your point, Brenton, people even blame God for allowing Satan to be on the world, in the world, uh, and saying, look, it's all God's fault. If he wasn't here, well, that's going a little bit too far in my opinion. Well, now we come to something which... um, changes the situation, and we're reading from Hebrews 9.24. Ken, what's Jesus doing now in heaven? Well, Len, since Jesus returned to heaven after his death, he has been working in the heavenly sanctuary as a representative before God, watching over us and guiding us through this life. As it says in the scripture you've just quoted, Hebrews 9 and verse 24, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. So he's working there day and night on our behalf before Almighty God. Yes, it's interesting that terminology. He's appearing for us in God's presence. Nick, how? Len, even before we answer uh, that question, I should say that um, we need to look into the Old Testament to understand uh, the work in the tabernacle, the, in the, the copy which was given to Moses from God. Because I would like uh, to mention that passage again, which Ken was uh, making notice of. Because it says here that, Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands. That's very interesting. But into the heaven itself. And why is Christ ministering in the heavenly temple? Because many people don't believe in heavenly sanctuary, but he is there to be in between us and God, pleading with his blood before the Father. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, that was a very clearly illustrated, and we talked about uh, this in previous programs, even the last program, how the sinner was exposed to the results of sin, and he had to deal with that. And now Jesus dealt with that on the cross. He paid that price with his blood, and he is intermediating, if you like, us all before the Father. Yes, I have a... A, a sort of a picture in my mind where you have, if a movie was made of it, we'd have a, f- a shot of people on earth who are asking to be forgiven and then there would be a shot of God the Father sitting on the throne and then sitting alongside him on uh, a throne also is Jesus. 
and a petition goes up from a sinner, says, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned. And God the Father says, on what grounds should I forgive that person? And Jesus raises his hand, his nail-scarred hands, and he says, Father, I have done this for them, that you should forgive them. And I, uh, I think it's really worthwhile for us to have a kind of a picture in our minds like that. When we do something wrong, there is Jesus appearing for us in God's presence. So what does this mean for us, Will? Len, you've drawn a beautiful picture. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has taken us and our case right into the most holy place before God. You know, and as our substitute and guarantor, Jesus stands before the Father as a complete fulfillment of the new covenant promise. Uh, The new covenant promise which says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You know, this brings into effect the words of Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 50, Jeremiah chapter 50, which says, A search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found. For I will forgive the remnant I spare. So that the good news is that Jesus can eradicate our guilt, Len, panel, and listener, and offer us life eternal. Well, that's just so good. Sometimes I people have said to me, I pray and I feel like my prayers don't get any higher than the ceiling. But we can be assured that when we pray, that we are heard and those prayers are taken seriously. And Jesus stands before the Father as our guarantor of forgiveness. Well, now, we have heard a little bit today, and you've probably heard at other times, about the earthly sanctuary or the earthly temple. Now, when the priests went into those rooms, the holy place, and once a year the most holy place, did they go there empty-handed, Brenton? No, they didn't. Uh, they went. They brought blood into there, which they sprinkled on the various items in the holy place. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest entered the most holy place and, interestingly enough, sprinkled blood on the mercy seat and on the horns of the ark seven times, which is uh, rather interesting. Christ himself actually made the statement when at the Last Supper that he invited the um, disciples to drink. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. So our great high priest, which we'll discuss a bit more further on, Len, uh, the earthly uh, priesthood uh, was important because he had to bring something. He had to bring blood. We're also told in the book of Hebrews he had to bring gifts. When Christ shed his blood, he also brought a gift. The gift that he brought was eternal life. By the shedding of his blood, eternal life is available to all those who accept it. It's interesting. All these um, ceremonies and things that were performed in relation to the old temple or the earthly temple, 
how they pointed to the heavenly. Now, the fact that the priest brought the blood into the temple, Helen, was that important? I believe absolutely, and the Bible confirms it as well. It was pointing forward to Jesus in the heavenly temple. But let me share with you what Hebrews 9.22 says, and again from the New Living Translation. It says, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You know, we sometimes people think, oh, there must be a bloodthirsty God to actually have, have said this. And why does forgiveness be require the shedding of blood? You know, um, there is no greater symbol of life than blood because blood keeps us alive. And Jesus shed his blood, gave his life for our sins so that we wouldn't have to experience spiritual death and eternal separation from God. Amen. And that's such good news. Now, talking about the earthly temple and the priest bringing blood in there, what did Jesus bring into the heavenly temple, Lydia? Jesus came into the heavenly temple just himself, just as the sacrifice once for all the people who are believing in him and as an evidence to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. Yes. Um, as the uh, earthly priest brought blood into the temple, Jesus really, you said you brought himself, but he also brought the evidence of his shed blood. You might remember that when Jesus was hanging on a cross, uh, a spear was thrust into his side and that his hands and his feet, or at least his ankles, uh, would have bled profusely. Also, his back was lacerated from the lashing that he had earlier. But when Jesus came into the heavenly temple in bringing himself, he brought the evidence of his spilt blood. Now, Joe, the writer of Hebrews points his readers, readers back to the time when God gave his law to the Israelites and non-Israelites. Now, I say that because a lot of people say, oh, God only gave the Ten Commandments to the Jews. No, that's not right. There were non-Jews in that company there at Sinai. So, Joe, would you read Hebrews twelve, eighteen to 21 and describe the scene that occurred back at uh, Mount Sinai? This comes from Hebrews 12, and it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. And then it goes on to describe what happened in Exodus on Mount Sinai. It says that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commandment, commanded. Sorry. Now, that, that takes us back to Exodus 19, and, and that gives us a very, very similar description, which would have been absolutely frightening and fearsome if we can just imagine this in our minds with the mountain quaking, fire, darkness, all forces of nature appeared to have broken loose. And it says in Exodus 19, 
Now, Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. The voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, and it goes on. But it gives us a picture of what a terribly terrifying scene this would have been. If we could just imagine, it would it would have appeared like the end of the world for them. Thank you, Joe. Back at the beginning of this study today, I asked the question, do people need to be afraid of God? Now, you've just told us a little bit about the scene when the law was given at Mount Sinai. So back then the people were afraid, but why were they afraid, Ken? Well, just following on from what Joe has said, I think it's interesting to paint this picture. We see the people at Mount Sinai and Moses, uh, God has told Moses to prepare the people for he's coming down to see them on the, on the third day. Now, Mount Sinai is seven and a half thousand feet tall, so it's a pretty big mountain, and we have all the people gathered around, and this is massive thick cloud comes down, and then there's smoke, there's fire, there's lightning, and also the mountain is quaking. So if you can picture people standing there looking at this, it must have been an absolutely terrible, terrible, amazing thing in there because the trumpets are blaring and, and then you have the thundering voice of God. And so the people watching all of this, they've actually, although they can't see God, they hear his voice and they witness his power and majesty. Yes, it must have been quite uh, an impressive and obviously frightening thing. Lydia. The majesty, power of God, the creator, was manifested in their midst, in their presence, for them to know that he is the creator, he is the, the sustainer, he is the one that is the Lord of the Lord and the King of Kings. And this was speaking to them to come to him with reverence in humbleness that they are creatures and God is the creator. And it's not a, a, a message to send to them a message of fear because, for example, since I was little, uh, you know, lots of children are, are afraid of thunder and uh, lightning. But when it was storming, and uh, was thundering very, very strong that it, you felt that all the trees are cracking. I was not afraid. I always delighted in the sound of thunder and lightning. Why? I don't know why, but to me, it's, it's beautiful. So, <laughs> uh, even in, in this sense that even Moses says that he was trembling with fear in the presence of God. I understand the majesty of the creation, the power and strength, not fear. Yes, yes. Well, you sort of posed a question. You said you uh, are not afraid of uh, thunder and lightning. And I was just thinking when you said that about our dog, which we don't have anymore, but when a thunderstorm was on, the dog who was usually full of bravado at any other time, 
lost all that bravado and found the safest place in the house he could find, usually between our legs somewhere. <laughs> yes, Brenton. Um, there's another aspect there. We've touched on the power and the majesty of God. I believe there's another aspect that Joe touched on very highly in Exodus 19, and that is this. God's holiness is being demonstrated here. You read other sections of Scripture, the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, and other sections of Scripture, you find that the angels, the cherubim who surround the throne, they fly around saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I believe that the physical demonstrations are part of God's holiness because God said that his people were to be holy just as he was holy. And I believe that that's a very important aspect of what almost the theatrics that took place in Exodus 19. I believe God's holiness is demonstrated there. And it's demonstrated again in the New Testament, where in Second Peter we are told that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. So I think that all of those aspects taken together, um, God wants us to be holy just as he is holy. And that's a message for us and also for our listeners today. So would it be um, correct to say that a person, or I shouldn't really say a person, but holiness has an impact? Yes. All right. Well, let's move on from there. With all this going on at Mount Sinai, in Exodus 19, verse 17, Nick, It tells what Moses did with the people at this event. There's some very very important words here. Yes, Len, and uh, as was mentioned already from this uh, chapter 19, uh, the situation of uh, the demonstration of God's power and holiness, I noticed one thing in verse 17, that Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, just think of this. These people were afraid and trembled in the camp in the previous verse. And now Moses is taking them out of the camp to the foot of the mountain where God's manifestation is. It may seem a little bit uh, irrational. If you are afraid in the camp, (laughs) then would you be uh, more confident, uh, closer to God? But I believe this is the object lesson. We need to to be brought out of our comfort zone. We need to be brought to the foot of the cross, where the manifestation of the power of God is. And we cannot get there in any manner. We should be prepared to go there, because if we look further, uh, we see later on that the people didn't want to um, to be there, and they will rather ask Moses to go before the Lord, but they, them not to be exposed. But I think this is the lesson for us. We need to look at ourselves if we can meet God or not. All right. Well, Moses wanted the people to lead the people to meet with God, and when they encountered the evidence of God, they actually were a bit afraid. I think it's also, um, we might think someone mentioned the word theatrics, but I think God wanted to show them that he was a living and powerful God, not like the gods that they worshipped in Egypt. 
Now, they would never have seen anything of this kind ever, ever before. And so God had to show them that he was not just another pagan deity, just another God with a little g, but the God, the one and only, the most powerful, the the ruler of the universe. And I think, um, I don't think it was theatrics. It was God being, showing himself in a limited way that he was real and um, and genuine and not just another piece of wood overlaid with gold or molten, whatever it is, that they worshipped in Egypt. So, yeah, I think it was the contrast that God was trying to achieve there. Joe, Joe, I was just, um, I need to clarify that. I didn't mean theatrics in the sense that we think of theatrics. No, no, but it would. I just couldn't think of an appropriate word. I couldn't think of an appropriate word to describe that everything was taking place. I think it was a good word because the Mm. secular mind would actually see it as theatrics. Yes. But it Mm. wasn't. It was God on God's presence. Well, I was going to say, I think you made a really good point there, Joe. Now, a lot of people have a concept of God that maybe is akin to what the people back there at Mount Sinai thought with all this thunder and lightning and smoke and and the shaking of the ground going on. I think they might have thought that God was um, angry, Perhaps. My question is, and this relates to our days, is God the Father hostile to sinners? Will? You know, God is presented to us in Scripture as a welcoming and loving God, especially as demonstrated through the ministry of Jesus. But to answer the question, is God hostile to sinners? I'd like to use perhaps the best text we can find in this regard, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. It says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God, in contrast to being hostile, is really welcoming and loving towards us, Len. And that also is good news. Yes, Joe. It's important to note that, you know, sometimes when we read these texts in the Bible, we think that for us is a select group. What it actually means that everyone, anyone in the whole wide world who's ever existed can make these promises claim these promises for themselves this is not a select group of good people or regular churchgoers or you know um you know upstanding citizens this is for anybody and everybody no matter where they live no matter what they've done i think it's important yes nick want to add to what joe was saying it's true this is available for every every single person on earth but also God was showing his love and mercy and kindness through these people. And that's where we fall into the picture also as believers, because we are called to represent God on this earth, to be a living testimony. And many other people who may not know God 
they could come confidently to God themselves and have a personal experience, encounter with God. I believe this is the the key for uh, Christendom in the world today. Unfortunately, many times Christians are cutting off themselves as God's people did, as being Israel at that time, isolating themselves from the rest of the world. Are we isolating from the rest of the world or are we showing our experience with God to the rest of the world? Yes, I've heard it said, and I think it's very appropriate that uh, we might be the only evidence of Christ or God to some people. And that's rather challenging, isn't it? Lydia? God's manifestation of his holiness at Mount Sinai was to teach the people to learn to fear or to respect him. The fear of the Lord leads to life, wisdom, and honor, and also to the lesson that he is merciful and gracious. Thus, while God wanted Israel to come to him, the people became afraid and requested for Moses to be their intermediary. The description in Hebrew of the events of Sinai follows primarily Moses' reminder to the people of their lack of faith and their apostasy with the golden calf and how he was afraid of meeting God because of their sin. The people's reaction was not God's plan for them. It was instead the result of their faithlessness. And in their case, in Israel's time, seeing God's miracles, seeing God's presence with them day and night, they shouldn't be afraid at this stage when God called them to the mountain. But I think the this sensation of being afraid is implanted, implanted in yourself when you don't have a relationship with God. So they didn't know God at that stage. They didn't have a relationship with God. Even seeing his presence with them day and night, step by step for such a long time. That was so sad from their part. Yes, I suppose when we think about it, some people are afraid of the speed limit because they recognize if they go over the speed limit, they put themselves at risk of having a fine. But if you don't um, choose to go over the speed limit, there's no reason to be afraid of it, is there? All right, well, now, Brenton, uh, come back to the earthly temple because sure. well, you have to sure. see the parallels mm. between the earthly and the heavenly temple. Yes. Uh, in Le- Leviticus chapter 16, uh, it talks about the veil separating two ro- the two rooms. Why was it there? Uh, I believe it was there primarily to protect the priests and also the people then, but let me read it quickly. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. 
I believe there's some very important points here. The veil was a veil of protection, but what actually took place is Nadab and Abihu kindled their own fire. They did not kindle the fire from the altar that was in the holy place that the Lord himself had lit. They kindled their own fire. And there's even a suggestion here that maybe they went into the most holy place where they weren't meant to have gone. So there's a an interesting sequence, Len. The people came to the tent of meeting. They killed the lamb. And then the blood was taken by the priest into the holy place. Once a year, it was taken by the high priest into the most holy place. So there's a sequence of three things here. The people could not approach within the the tabernacle, as it was then known, at all. They had to remain outside. But um, backing that up is now in Christ, as we've discussed so far, we can go into the very presence of God through a person who has conquered all of those three steps. We can go into the very presence of God through Jesus. And I think that's wonderful news for us and for our listeners. Yes, Nick. I was going to say something which probably will surprise maybe uh, some of you or maybe a listener. I believe the veil was Jesus because only through Jesus you can get through God, which was in the most holy place. And every time when the sacrifices was brought into the most holy place, that was because Jesus was about to come and every single sacrifice represented Jesus. Sure. And you know, Jesus, when the, the veil was torn from top to bottom, that also represent when Jesus was sacrificed, when Jesus was torn and nothing can be done without Jesus being in between. And he chose to be in between us to represent us to, and to bridge, to bridge all this problem of sin. Nobody could deal with that because the result of sin is death. Nobody could deal with sin without death. And every time when the sin was, the sacrifice and the, the, the priest went once a year in the most holy place that was going through Jesus. Uh, the reason I'm building on this is because unfortunately I came across with so many people who are believers who don't believe in a heavenly sanctuary. And that's what we are trying a little bit through the passages in the Bible today to show the relevance of the sanctuary in heaven and what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. Yeah, sure. Yes, Joe. I just wanted to, there is a text, Nick, it doesn't surprise us. Uh, There is a text in Hebrews 10 that says that very thing alludes to the fact that um, the veil represents Jesus. And it's in chapter 10 verses probably well, maybe 19 and 20, but therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, opened for us through the curtain of his body. So I think this is a definite um, allusion to Jesus representing, or the veil rather, representing Jesus. Yes. There is a comment I'd like to make before Helen shares with us. Uh, We were talking about the holiness of God being demonstrated at Mount Sinai. I think there's something we need to understand. Um, In society, there seems to be a belief that God is just a sugar daddy or a little pussycat. And then there's this 
opposite view that God is an angry ogre. I'm exaggerating here a bit, perhaps, but I think God was demonstrating his power, his majesty, his might to show that he is to be answered to, that he is not just a little pussycat who can be pushed around. He is God Almighty. Anyhow, let's move on. Yes, Helen? Jesus as our priest has also been our veil, and through his incarnation, God pitched his tent in our midst and made it possible for us to contemplate his glory. He made it possible for a holy God to live in the midst of an imperfect people. And when I think of that, I think to myself, well, yeah, Jesus was definitely the perfect, the perfect person. He was, he was, um, God manifested in flesh. He was a perfect uh, teacher. And in Jesus' life, we see how God thinks and therefore how he wants us to think. Uh, he's a perfect example as a model of what we are to become. He shows us how to live and gives us power to live that way. And he's the perfect sacrifice. He came as a sacrifice for all sins and his death satisfied God's requirement for the removal of sin. And if we were to look at John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, and, and down to verse 18, we can see where God communicated to his people, but it was to his imperfect peace people. Now Moses, he, he was, um, he could only be the giver of the law while Christ came to fulfill the law. And the nature and the will of God were revealed in the law, but now the nature and will of God are revealed in Jesus. And he was the, and is the perfect, the perfect sacrifice for us. And he is our priest. And we should be rejoicing in that as imperfect people. Yes. It's like Queen Elizabeth said in her 2008 Christmas message, the world would do well to follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. Well, talking about God being holy, Ken, I realise there are a lot of people who completely disregard God and his holiness. How? Josh Len, where do we start to answer this one? I think we could spend some time looking into it. Not believing in God as one, the proof, if you look into it, is very clear that there is a, a, a God in heaven. Another people swearing, using his holy name and that of his son, not keeping the Ten Commandments, Christians who don't keep Saturday, the Bible, Seventh-day Sabbath, people who have little or no love for others or helping those in need, and the list just goes on and on. It really just, uh, it's amazing. Yes. I guess if God manifested himself as he did at Sinai, some of them might be um, awed by his presence. Now, Will, is God approachable? Jesus has, through his uh, sacrifice and sinless life, um, opened the veil, uniting um, repentant sinners and God the Father. You know, it's proud and, and sobering thought that as Jesus stands to intercede for sinners before the throne of God, there are some for which he cannot plead or seek intercession. It is only as we come to him in submission and repentance that he will take up our case and seek deliverance for us. We have full assurance, though, 
that he is able to save to the uttermost those that come to him for help. But let me read two texts from Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. We can approach God's throne with confidence. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive the mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. So when a person is feeling, oh, I'm I'm too bad to approach God and ask for forgiveness, well, that's not the case. The Bible clearly speaks that God is approachable and that we should approach him with boldness. Brenton, so what does God really think about us? Psalms 45 says this, 40 and verse 5, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done, and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. And we have a companion text in Second Peter 3, 9 that tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We've talked today about the, pro- the approachability of God. The will has touched upon that. Can I suggest that when we talk about God's love, uh, in my mind, various emotions come to the surface. I think a lot of people see God as a, a, a God who pities us because of our weakness and our helplessness. And that is an aspect of God's love. But I believe there are other aspects of God's love that we have not explored. And when it says your thoughts towards us cannot be, be numbered, I believe God is, he, he doesn't just pity the fact that I'm weak and sinful and that I need his grace. I think God is eager that I will show, that I will display in my life his image because Jesus came for the purpose not just of forgiving sins but of restoring God's image in man. And we sometimes overlook the restoration aspect, I believe, of God's love. God's Mm. love is to restore us into his image, and I think that's a very important part. This is why he's not willing that any should perish. He's patient. He wants as many people as possible not only to accept the gift but to reflect his character and to reflect him in their lives. That's what this world needs right now in 2022. Yes. Yes. Um, Jesus, of course, has established the connection between sinners and God. What about those who are not repentant of their sins, Nick? Len and Panel, um, as Brenton was uh, pointing out, that uh, God love us so much and love so much that uh, he he wishes that no one could perish. Mm-hmm. But can we abuse 
God's love? Can we abuse God's love? You know, again, with, with, with sorrow, I'm expressing my, my thoughts or with indignation that many people, many Christians who profess to believe that God is the, their uh, savior abuse his love through cheap grace. And I believe that those people who are uh, responsible for uh, hurting God, they are only, they are responsible themselves. And it will come, unfortunately, to a point when God will say enough, it's enough. And those people will, will not be received mm. in God's ki- kingdom. Yes. You can't forgive someone who doesn't want to be forgiven in this case. Mm. Well, now, one of the last points I want us to deal with today uh, revolves around one single word. Now, we've had this text before, but um, would you like to highlight this single word in Hebrews 12, verses 21 and 22, Joe? Yes, Glenn, um, I can. And the word is but. It says you have not come to it. I'm starting in verse 18, and in verse 22 is where the word is but. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, and it goes forth. Um, and then in 22, it says, uh, says to us, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So it contrasts, Paul in, in Hebrews is being contrasting the new, the old with the new, the old that the visible, the touchable and the old to the new and the invisible but touchable by faith. And whereas Mount Sinai was visible and touchable to some extent, but not touchable at the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments, it was unapproachable at that time. Mount Zion, on the other hand, while it is invisible to us, in this present earthly life, is touchable, so to speak, through faith. The writer um, is basically saying that this heavenly possession of Mount Zion is attained, is already attained by those who have believed the new covenant. So how much better and superior is this? You know, why, why cling to the tatters of the old, which cannot do anything for you? Because there's a but, but there is a, and, you know, the new, the, uh, what does he call it? The new, the Mount Zion, the city of the living God. So we don't have to worry about Mount Sinai and the inapproachability of God. I think we've mentioned that God is, you know, we can come boldly. Jesus' blood opens the way. There is no separation. The veil has been removed. And so anyone can approach God through Jesus. And so this is terribly, terribly reassuring, I find. This contrast of the old and the new, the past and that which is coming. Thank the Lord for buts. Can I just say that um, many people think that the old old system was faulty. No, it wasn't. God gave the old system. It's just that the person transacting the new system is superior to all that went before him. Yes, thank you. Well, 
There's no need for you, our radio friends, to be afraid of God. Instead, you may have confidence to approach God because Jesus has opened the way for us and for you. Now we're going to do a quick revision. Short answers, please, panel. Brenton, what's Jesus doing now in heaven? He's pleading his blood on behalf of all of us. Will, what does Christ's presence before God the Father guarantee? He lifts his wounded hands before the Father, saying, I know them by name. I've graven them upon the palms of my hands. God's Son speaks eloquently on our behalf for pardon and for a reward of life everlasting. Thank you. Helen, what promise did Jesus make to his faithful people? Wonderful promise, which Joe shared with us way back at the start uh, when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming. He's coming soon. And what a great promise. What a promise. Amen. (laughs) Joe. To whom does God appear to be scary? Joe, I would say the stubbornly unrepentant, the rebellious sinner, and those who are wicked and revel in their in their wickedness. Okay. Ken, what's God's attitude to sinners? Well, we read in John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world, so he couldn't do more than that. Okay. And lastly, Lydia, Can you be bold in approaching God? Yes, of course, because Jesus opened the veil separating man and God, and he is the bridge. He's a loving, gracious, forgiving father who wants us to be happy, to be with him. Wonderful. Dear listeners, we're so glad you've joined us today. What we've shared with you is a message of good news, really good news. Jesus, our substitute, our high priest, is the, is the bridge between you and God. He is your surety, and you do not need to fear God. Both Jesus and God the Father love you and want you to experience paradise for eternity. You're invited to come to the Lord. You'll not be turned away. All of us on the panel today sincerely want you to be with us in the presence of God for eternity. Mm. Helen, would you pray for our listeners today as we close? Thank you, Lynn. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, what an awesome, awesome God you are. Here you've shown us in your word, your love letter to us, what transpired in the in the olden times which were pointing to your son coming and dying on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that hearts have been touched mightily today. I pray, Lord, that those that are on the edge in the valley of decision, they will be thinking about what we've gone through this morning and by the Holy Spirit power, may they realise that today is the day of salvation now and not to put it off to another time, for there may not be another time. Lord, I just pray that you will bless each listener. I pray that you will be very real in their lives as well as in the life of all the panel members here today and take us through whatever is happening in this world. May we have such a faith and a trust in you and the love that you've shed abroad to everyone. 
May that bring us closer to you, closer to the cross, and closer to the time that you're coming to take us home. May we be ready to go with you. I pray in the loving name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, your participation today. This was a great study. I'll invite uh, you, dear listener, to join us again when we are going to look uh, into a beautiful uh, topic also, Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith. Until then, may God richly bless you and keep you safe in these troubled times, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Father in a temple made by God.